the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Last week, we began a new series from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And this series is in regards to what Paul is talking about, and that is Christian liberty. The topic of Christian liberty involves what we call gray areas, practices of life that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. And so it's up to us to figure out if it's okay for us to do them. They're challenging because when we look not at the world, but even at the church, there are differing views. Some say they're okay. Some say they're bad. And notice, rarely in a gray area does anyone say it's good, just that it's okay. It's allowed. The teaching from Paul comes out of an inquiry from the Corinthians themselves, the early believers in the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago, regarding Christians eating meat that had been sacrificed to false gods, to idols. This meat, the extra which had been sold, would be sold in the marketplace, was top quality meat because the animals that had to be brought to the temple, the false gods, the pagan gods and goddesses, the animals had to be perfect. They were even cut open and examined, and so this was good meat. The problem is that many of the Corinthian Christians had come out of these false religions. And so any association with them, including just eating a certain kind of meat, and as we unpack the chapter more next week, we'll see that some of these Christians were actually going to those temple feasts, not in worship, but just to enjoy the meal. And so this was troubling for the people who came out of those religions. But the thinking on those who said it was okay to eat the meat, who wanted to eat the meat, was that, Idols aren't real. We worship one true God. And since they aren't real, nor is anything associated with them really anything spiritual, we can eat the meat sacrificed to these idols. It's fine to eat it. Now, this reality, this knowledge that there is only one God was true also among the weaker Christians who would be caused to stumble if they saw their Christian brother or sister eating at the temple. They know that now. They're saved. They know that what they spent the previous years of their lives worshiping is not real, but it still caused them to stumble. There are still memories. There is a still des- a desire to be 100% disassociated with it. And so if when people start eating that meat, other Christians, and even going to the temple for the feast in our modern situation for the carnival, for the festival, just for the kids, go ride some rides, hit up the food trucks, hit up the booths, buy some crafts. It's a problem. Why are you going there? Now, the argument for those who say it's okay to eat the meat is based purely on theological facts or knowledge. That's it. 
you make it sound like that's not a good thing, that that's not enough. Well, the theological facts are that false gods are not real, thus eating this meat is fine. Why is it not enough? And we saw this last week. Paul addresses this by saying in verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians 8, which we unpacked last Sunday, that knowledge is not enough because knowledge alone makes you arrogant. In other words, it feeds your ego. In other words, it's just about you, the individual with the knowledge, the individual exercising his Christian liberty because of that knowledge. In the Christian life, the fact that knowledge is not enough does not make complete sense unless you understand that Paul goes further to say that you need love. Love edifies. Love builds up. In other words, love is focused on others. Knowledge is on self. Love is focused on others. In other words, whether it's for the Corinthians eating meat sacrificed to idols or any other gray area like drinking, kissing before marriage, smoking, or whatever, just knowing the facts is not enough. Just knowing that it is not forbidden in Scripture or that it is allowed in Scripture is not enough. Knowing your own tolerance level for your alcohol, knowing your own tolerance level for temptation and purity, that's not enough. The facts are not enough. You must consider others. You need to understand your part in the life of the church, the body of Christ, the Christian community, and decide whether a gray area is right or wrong, not just by the facts, the facts need to be involved, but not just by the facts, but how it may affect other Christians. To be clear, knowledge is not inconsequential. That would be saying the Bible is inconsequential. We must know the truth. We must study the Bible. Just told the kids that this morning in their video. They need to know the truth. They need to read the Bible or have their parents read the Bible to them. We must have it as our guide, but we must have it as our guide to worship, to love God, to love others. In fact, today's passage, Paul elaborates on the knowledge. He double downs on the importance of this knowledge, elaborates in detail what this knowledge is that we all have regarding God and regarding idols. It's a knowledge we must all use. And specifically, he continues to lay a foundation on this particular gray area by contrasting the false idols with the real God. Last week in our series, Limiting Liberty, we set a foundational comparison, comparing, comparing knowledge, which puffs up, and love, which edifies. And today we see Paul laying another foundation or furthering the foundation, a foundational contrast between the real God and false idols. And in our passage this morning, which is verses 4 through 6, he actually doesn't even address the issue of deciding on gray areas. He'll do that. He's still laying the foundation, and he will do that with much force from verse 7 on to the end of the chapter, making it very clear that in this gray area they are not to eat the meat. And we'll see that next week and perhaps over the next two weeks. But this week, he is in the context of deciding on gray areas, but he focuses on extolling the greatness of the one true God. Read with me or follow along as I read verses 4 through 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
We're in the New American Standard Version. He says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. Very simply this morning, I want to give you two facts about God. That's our outline. Two facts about God that contrast with pagan idols. Two facts about God that contrast with pagan idols. The first that Paul brings up is that the true God is singular. The true God is singular. Find this in the majority of the passage from verse 4 through the beginning of verse 6. I'm going to read that again for you. The true God is singular. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, there yet for us there is but one God. So he brings it back to this issue of eating things sacrificed to idols after talking about knowledge versus love. And then he says, we know that. It indicates that Paul is affirming what the Corinthians have said about idols not being real. Because they wrote him. They said, hey, idols aren't real, so we should be able to eat this meat, right? And he says, we know that. Everyone knows that. The people I'm going to protect in the next few verses, they know that. They've repented. They understand that these idols are not real. There's no such thing as an idol in the world. Now understand that it can be confusing because an idol can refer to a false god or an idol can refer to a statue or temple or something that is representing that god. Obviously, he's not saying that the idols in the form of statues don't exist. The city of Corinth back then, as well as many uh, cities in the Roman Empire, especially in the marketplace of Corinth, we know that they were, it was lined with statues of various gods and goddesses. Now, these idols were very valuable to the people who worshipped them. They were re- representing their gods. So they were made out of precious metal usually, copper. Perhaps they were made out of special stones like marble, gold, silver, even ivory or wood. The eyes would be precious stones. Paul is not denying the existence of these things anymore that I could stand up here and deny the existence of a statue of Buddha or the Venus de Milo in the Louvre that represents Aphrodite. I've seen them both. They exist. They're there. What Paul is denying is the existence of any other gods, the gods that are represented by these statues, these idols, the false deities that the pagans worshipped, whether represented in that statue or believing it's that statue itself. You've met people like this. You, you know people uh, even in our society, in our culture, are like this. I need to bring this statue, e- e- even uh, some Catholics, I need to bring this icon into my house and my house will be blessed. Things will be better. Right? Don't touch that. Blow a kiss to it, tap it every time I walk out the door to go to work. They believe in these types of things. They are important 
to them. Now, when he says idols are nothing, he is comparing, contrasting to the real God because it actually is something. And later in chapter 10, he will explain that the idols are something. They are demons. But the point is still true. They are not gods. Idols, Paul is saying, are non-entities. So, the food sacrificed to them is just food. The temple you enter when you are on vacation in Southeast Asia or some of these big old churches around Europe, it's nothing. Nice to look at, fun to visit, simply an incredible amount of money and artistic design dedicated to nothing. Well, we know it's not nothing. It's dedicated to evil and wickedness, but you get the point. It's nothing. It's a, it's a, it's a non-issue. Why can't we eat that food? What's wrong with going to the Catholic bazaar, the, 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 the harvest fair that they have every year, and go buy some food? It's good stuff. Crafts. My neighbor's selling crafts there. Why can't I go there? We're not worshiping. It's not mass. It's just a fair. The worship to Zeus is over. Now it's a big party with food. My neighbors have invited me. I know it's going to be a good spread. Why can't I go? If the idols are non-entities, it's just food. I'm not worshiping. I'm not killing. I'm not praying to that God. It's not even in the temple. It's in the courtyard outside of it. I don't understand what's wrong. And this is the argument that the Corinthians who justify eating the sacrifice meat would use. It's not real. There's nothing wrong with going to Disneyland. I, I, we know this is fake. My kids know there's no princess in that castle. It's make-believe. I'm not trying to deceive them in any way. What's wrong with it? And what Paul is saying in verses 4 through 6 is like, yes, we know that. We all know that. That's beside the point. Hello, McFly, we get it. It's not real. But that's not enough. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to contrast these nothings with the one and only something, the true God. And the point he makes first is that contrary to this common belief that there are dozens, if not thousands, of gods and goddesses, there's only one. One, one true God. Not one supreme God like Zeus who is more powerful than all the other gods. There is literally only one God. Not one great God among lesser gods. There is one God. We just read it, but turn with me again to Psalm 115 verses 4 through 7. Psalm 115, 4 through 7, in our scripture reading this morning, we saw the explanation of what these idols really are. And it's similar to the passage that we're reading in 1 Corinthians. He says their idols are silver and gold. Did they, are they the Alpha, the Omega? Did they exist eternally? No, they were a work of man's hands. Someone sat in his workshop and made this thing. Verse 5, they have mouths, right? 
You understand what they're saying? The statue has a, a mouth carved into it. But they cannot speak. They have eyes. Little precious stones, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Why? Because it's just a knickknack. Like our passage, this psalm is contrasting the idols with the one true God. And we understand this reality. But what he's setting forth is some of the toys, same thing, right? A doll or whatever, a stuffed animal. Some of these toys that my boys have, they have more value than these idols. Because at least they have a little recorder in them. You squeeze their hand and they can talk. They can walk around and do whatever. This is just a chunk of marble. Value if you sell it but not the value that these worshipers put on it. Right? And we, you know, I read verses 4 through 7 of Psalm 115, and I, you know, we get what he's doing. Right? He's, he's, he's comparing, contrasting to God. But I don't think anyone reads this. Uh, I think even unbelievers, they wouldn't read this and be like, oh, they can't speak? We get that. It, it's almost like, why, why say this? Why is this poetry? Because people are enmeshed in the worship of these things. Imagine walking into a temple, as some of you have, as I have, in another country, some in this country. A temple larger than this hotel. I'm not exaggerating. And worth a lot more. Dozens of Buddhist monks walking around. And you look at these people, they've dedicated their lives to this, more than just an average worshiper. You get this. Hundreds of worshipers. Kids tugging on your hands to leave because the smell of incense so thick that you can hardly breathe. And when you get home, you can still smell it, and you can't tell if it's stuck in your nostrils, if it's in your memory, or if it's in your clothes. Golden statues lining the walls of this giant temple, and I don't just mean the color gold. We know this psalm is true, but the deep-seated belief in the existence of these idols has literally controlled millions and dictated the policies of nations. This is a big deal. To assert that God is one is a no-brainer to us, but goes against the grain of culture after culture, including atheism and our modern society. This was true in the Old Testament times. This was true in the New Testament times. This is true today. We may not get it living in California, but it is true. It is very real. Those things you've seen on your travels, they don't exist as a tourist destination. They say, oh, I hear some Americans with backpacks are traveling. So they are literally beating themselves to get that statue to do what they want. Paul reiterates this truth in verse 5 through the beginning of verse 6. He says, there are so-called gods, meaning false gods, in heaven, naturally, as well as on earth. What does that mean? 
Well, the emperors of Rome and pharaohs of Egypt were considered gods and they lived on earth. The deities of the Greco-Roman world were extremely diverse and extremely numerous. In addition to the famous ones that we studied in ancient history back in high school, there were many other deities in what were called the mystery cults. And it is true that someone would just come up with the statue and go, new cult, new god, who, wa- who, who wants to buy it? Some believe that this is what Paul is distinguishing between when he says gods and lords. Gods would have been the uh, traditional name for gods, you know, Zeus, Venus. But the lords were what the mystery cults called, called their idols. And another point that may help us here is that though there were some who dedicated their lives to service of a particular god or goddess, even serving at their temple full-time, there was no need for them to stick to just one. Polytheism, or the worship of multiple gods, was not a problem for them. If anything, it helped them. It kind of reminds me of the saints of the Catholic Church today. There was a different deity to turn to for any number of circumstances in your life, much like many Catholics do to the various saints. And as believers, we are reminded that the fact that God is one is not just the reality that there are no other gods, but also that one God, because of who He is, is enough. We don't need a God of this and a God of that and a goddess of whatever. He does it all. He is sovereign, not just over our vegetation or our love life or, or our health. He is sovereign over all of it. You get the point here? There was a, there's a goddess of love and there's a goddess of bounty for those who were farming or selling at the marketplace. There's a God for every little thing. And you need, depending on your station in life and your job, you would pray to or offer to different gods. God, our God does it all. He's in control of all of it. Not just some things, all of it. And we don't need to turn to someone else as some do to the Virgin Mary because God's too busy with everyone else's prayers. He hears it all. He is helping me preach and helping you listen as he is doing with thousands of other pastors right now. He's not scrambling back and forth. He's doing it for all of us right now. Every prayer, millions at a time, He's answering them, hearing them, blessing them, watching over them. He does it all. He's all we need. Naturally, the Corinthians who are using their liberty to eat the sacrificed meat would argue that Paul is actually making their case here. Thank you, Paul. But what Paul is actually doing is affirming that the right knowledge is important, but from there, we must understand that not everyone has the res- same response to that knowledge. And that's what he's going to say uh, in our passage next week where he says not everyone has this knowledge. It's not that not all Christians believe that there's only one God and all the other gods are false. It's their knowledge of how to respond properly to that knowledge. It causes some to stumble and other people just don't care. But secondarily, what he's doing here is he's setting up the reality of the Christian's devotion to the one true God and then getting them to think, getting us to think about the ramifications of that. 
if God is that great, then you better be thinking seriously about who He is and how you respond to Him. And if there's only one true God, which you Corinthian believers clearly know and worship, then He demands absolute allegiance. And true and full commitment to the one true God, to the Lord, means you go beyond just the facts and love particularly in our context when it comes to gray areas. Additionally, as we will look at more thoroughly next week, if there truly is only one true God, then we do not want to in any way lead the weaker believer into thinking that any sort of connection to idol worship is okay, which for some weaker believers means just even going to a meal at a temple. And if all of that is not enough for you to sacrifice your personal spiritual liberties for others, then let's read on to see how tightly connected you are as a believer to that one true God. Our second fact about God that contrasts with pagan idols is that the true God is supreme. We've seen that He is singular. There is only one, but He is also supreme. Look at verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God. The Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. If you are a grammarian, you'll really enjoy this verse, because the power of a preposition is seen here, and each of those brings out a very important role of the Father and the Son in our relationship to that person of the Trinity. Let's start with all things. All things, we are told, are from the Father and by or through, in the ESV, Jesus Christ. Now, we know that all three members of the Trinity were involved in creation. Here we are told of the role of the Father and the Son. And as a side note, as we unpack this, this verse shows that the Apostle Paul has absolutely no problem with the reality of one God in three persons. It's not an issue for him. We know here two persons, but from other places the Spirit as well, of course. For him, as it should be for us, there's absolutely no tension of one God in three persons. Back to all things. All things is just that. The created order, the created universe. God the Father, he says, is the ultimate source of all things. He is the creator. As such, nothing lies outside of his jurisdiction. By contrast, the many gods worshipped in that day were often subject to the whims and power of the cosmos or even other gods. The true God, Paul's God, our God, is separate from all things as their source. By the way, this includes you. I like the word origin. He is the origin of all things. This all pertains to the triune God, but in particular the role of the Father in creation. Whereas the Son, Jesus Christ, is the one through whom God created. In other words, it was through Jesus Christ that all creation was created. Turn back to John, the Gospel of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. 
famous gospel that begins, in the beginning was the Word. Verses 1 and following, John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The following verses explain that the Word, of course, is a reference to Jesus Christ, perhaps most clearly in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is none other than the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the Lord, Jesus Christ. So one God. One God did it all. Again, it wasn't one God made and another God has helped out and yet another God sustained and then this God has said, well, we need this and then they added more. It was all one God. It wasn't even a, 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 relay, a, a relay race, a tag team. I did the creation. Now a next God sustains. Next God better get eternity ready. No, it's all one God, same God. But there's more. Paul goes on to say that we exist for the Father and we exist through the Son. What does that mean? Let's start with Jesus. Flip it around. We were not only created physically through the Son, as we just saw, but we are saved through Him. That's what that means. We exist through the Son. The way for created man to get to the Father is through and only through Jesus Christ. Back in John 1, He continues in verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then in John 1, verses 12 and 13, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Verse 13, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Through Jesus Christ. We understand that. You could say that in salvation we were recreated through Christ as believers, a new creation, a new creature. Jesus Christ, you've heard it said before, is the agent of salvation is another way of putting it. The contrast is clear to the mess and confusion of polytheism. Lack of clarity as to who or what salvation entails. Who's more powerful? Who's going to win this battle among the gods? I'm going to go on his or her side because maybe then I'll get to heaven. Who do you appease? Who do you offer to? Who do you pick? It's a mess. You don't know. How do I get saved? How do I get to heaven? If even such a thing exists for that particular religion, for us it is clear. It's what we're all about as Christians. It's what the Bible all points to. Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ to the end that we exist for the Father. That's the fourth point he makes, third chronologically, but our fourth point. We exist for the Father. And there it is. That's everything. That's everything. What are you talking about? You do not exist for you. You exist for Him. You don't even ultimately exist for your kids, your family, the church. You exist for the Father. Our existence is for His purposes. 
not just your life and breath, not just your birth, not just your creation, but everything you do. You understand is what we're talking about here. Whatever role you play in the church, in your family, in society, it is all for his satisfaction, not yours. It is for God's satisfaction, not your satisfaction. Although, the more you pursue true worship, the more the two become one and the same. You are satisfied when he is satisfied. You know, we so easily forget that we exist for him because of all that he has graciously blessed us with and allows us to enjoy here on earth. We get a little too forgetful of why we exist on one hand. And on the other hand, we tend to get a little chummy, too chummy with God. He loves us. He is our Abba Father. I'm not trying to remove that from your understanding. But he is still a holy God whom we are to fear. We often go beyond the bounds of Scripture and somehow think that he exists for us. We would never say that, but sometimes our thinking and theology reflect that. Our behavior reflects that. Our attitude in prayer when we ask for things reflects that. So often we are left in confusion. I just want to give an example. It's something I was thinking about this week, and I think it it ties in well here. So often we are left in confusion about why God does certain things. His word is very clear, but we don't know the particulars of why he does things. There's no explanation except for God's goodness and God's sovereignty. And so we trust in that, praise him for that, and we wait. We wait until he comes again or we die and we see him face to face for him to explain. There's probably a number of things that you're waiting to get to heaven so he will explain why he did what he did. Oh, Pastor Roger, don't worry. When you're in heaven, God will tell you why he took Emily's life. Wait for him. He'll, he'll tell you when you get to heaven why you got cancer, why he didn't save your parents, why you grew up without parents. He'll explain it to you. Who told you that? He doesn't need to tell you a thing. He doesn't owe you an explanation. You exist for him. He might tell you. But he doesn't have to. Do you understand that our presence in heaven will be the height of the reality that we are depraved sinners in need of grace? He's not obligated to explain his actions just because you're in heaven now. How dare you? How dare you think that? I'm dead now. You owe me. You need to tell me. Why did I have to go through that? How dare you? dare you. You exist for him. You have forgotten the order of things in our romantic hallmark movie notion of your life and heaven. You are nothing without him. You don't even exist without him. And you're somehow thinking that he's going to give you all that you desire because you're dead now? Let us not forget who he is. And let us definitely not forget who we are. 
what's this all have to do with gray areas? Clearly what God has done and who he is goes beyond looking up facts in a book about the reality of idols or whatever gray area it may be. There's an allegiance and a life of worship that involves sacrifice and service. It involves love. It involves considering what pleases God. And it involves considering what helps other believers. Not to the sacrifice of that knowledge, you understand. You don't twist or negate or ignore Scripture to spare another Christian's feelings. What we're talking about is much deeper than that, as we'll see in the coming weeks, where you could really cause someone to have the wrong view of their worship and about God. So yes, we know that idols are nothing, but just using that fact to eat meat at the temple feast to enjoy the high-quality meat misses the point of the power, the wonder, and the grace of God and how that flows through you and is to, how it is to dictate everything that you do. You must take that knowledge. You must know theology. You must read. You must memorize. But you must then practice. There is no point in knowing all of that, as I said last week, if you don't practice it. Recently in the men's group, we talked about this. That even here on a Sunday morning, we, we are refreshed, we are encouraged, we learn, we grow. And we think that's enough. But that's not enough. It's good, it's wonderful, it's a blessing, but it's not enough. Because if you're truly growing, then what you learned Sunday after Sunday is going to explode out into ministry through love. Obviously, I'll say more about it in the following weeks, but I want to share with you something that I shared with the men on Thursday night in our men's group. There is a, a stereotype, perhaps it's even a fear, not only in churches, but maybe in your job as well, or wherever you go, in your club, in your family, that the biggest problem that we may face as a church is if someone walks through those doors and comes in and starts creating factions and division because they think they know everything, they're arrogant, they start telling people what to do, they start pointing out what I've done wrong, what the deacons have done wrong, and then they, they, they're, they're hurting the church because they think they're the only one that matters, right? Pride. We've seen this. Pride. Arrogance. But I don't think that's as big of a problem in our church as the issue that I shared with the men. There's a bigger problem in our church, which is that there are believers that think they don't matter. It's okay to skip out on a few meetings because I'm not involved. No one really knows me. I don't influence anyone. It doesn't matter. I'm not one of the regulars. I'm not a member. I don't serve. You matter. 
And no matter how much you want to hide and not serve and not influence people, you are influencing people. There were two people in our church once who really hit it off. And I know for a fact that they were both people who didn't feel like they fit in. Despite coming for many months, they still saw the church as them. I don't know if, they, you know, they, they didn't really far feel like part of the group. I, I, you, I think you all get this, right? You've all felt that, perhaps at this church or somewhere else. They thought they didn't matter. They were still testing the waters. We call them fringe people. And then the one person just kind of checked out because they said it wasn't for them. And the second person left our church because this person wasn't returning her calls. Everyone matters. And it's not because of your skills. It's secondarily that. It's because God has put you here. Sorry. It's because God has saved you and chosen to bring you here or here as you tune in on our live stream. It's one of those things where I think it's the only thing. The fact that you exist here means that God has made it so that we need you. And this should not scare you. This should not say, well, oh, man, I, I really matter. I'm influencing people. I just don't, I'm not qualified. I, I need to get my life right. No, you, yeah, you do for the Lord. But that's not a qualification. The qualification is that you're saved and he brought you here. And guess what? If you hear my voice right now, you're saved and he brought you here. For those of you who are Christians. You matter. It doesn't matter if nobody knows your name. You're here. You matter. You're part of the body. It's like saying, you know, it's like my, my son getting hurt because, you know, three boys happens a lot. And saying, it hurts right here. What is this called? Tell the doctor, what is this called? Uh, I don't know the name of that part of your body technically, so just cut it off. doesn't matter. I didn't know. I, I mean, this is probably less with little kids, more with you know, as you get older, oh, I'm feeling pain in a part of my body I didn't even know exists. Cut it off. If it's, you know, didn't really know it existed before, then it doesn't matter. You wouldn't do that. You're part of the body. Right? I mean, even the things that seem to have the, 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 the least amount of impact on our lives, ironically, we spend the most time with, right? When's the last time you cut your fingernails? Looked at him. Ooh, getting too long, getting too dirty. We all matter. And this is what Paul is saying. Because when it comes to gray areas, when it comes to how we influence others, we, we all influence each other. Right? It doesn't matter how unknown, how small, how seemingly insignificant that little gear is. You don't dare pop that out because the bigger gears are still in the watch. The whole thing just, you know, maybe you can shove them together and they turn, but 
it's not functioning properly. And so when it comes to gray areas, it, it all often also like, well, I'm, yeah, you know, if Roger does those things, people will be caused to stumble. If Chris does those things, then, then yeah, people will be affected. But I, you know, I don't matter. Yes, you do. You matter. And this isn't, this isn't a, me saying, oh, you better, you better watch it. You matter. I mean, what a joy. What a joy that you belong. I don't care if you don't feel like you belong. You belong. And I, you know, I've, I know I've done it again. I'm, I desire to shepherd you, and so now we're not even talking about gray areas anymore, but we love you. We know you love us, kind of, maybe, because you're here. We need you. When it comes to gray areas, we this is not just for the mature and the immature, those who are the in crowd and those who are the fringe. Because ultimately what we're talking about is, is not just influence, okay? That's a natural result. What we're talking about is love. We're talking about love. You should actually seek more influence out of your love for other people, whether to influence them or let them influence you. I know this is difficult. I, you know, I'm so thankful. In a couple of weeks, we're going to add more. I'm so thankful how many new members we've had that joined us since uh, the pandemic. So some have joined us live, well, you know, in our kind of yo-yo meetings back and forth. But, you know, they've joined us. They've committed. But I know that there are a lot of people just hopping around. They don't know where they belong. They're checking out different churches. And that's okay. I, I get maybe that, that process is even more prolonged. But make sure you don't get in the mindset that I just, I'm not, haven't chosen a church yet, and so I don't really matter. You matter. If you're here just this week, you matter to us this week. You matter to us always, but you get my point. So we are reminded of the greatness of our God. And if what we have looked at this morning about God is true, then His reach and what He desires of us and what we must be doing for Him impacts every single one of us regardless of personality, introvert, extrovert, regardless of finances, regardless of what your church is, regardless of what your background is. This does not mean you all of a sudden need to be the most outgoing person and do all those things. You are who God has created you to be if there's sin turn and repent. But that's the beauty of all of this. It goes back to the singularity and the power of God that He has created us, not at all as robots looking the same, doing the same things. We have challenges. We have disagreements on gray areas. We have debates. We have preferences on food, teams, politics, what's attractive in a spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend. It's the beauty of all of this. And so let's take all of this together, recognize who God is, and worship Him because of it, worship Him as it, and love one another.
Therefore, consider the, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful reminder of who you are, who we are. Though we, most of us, don't have the background or even an understanding of pagan religions or, or being involved in polytheism, we're thankful for this clear contrast. Uh, the world desperately is clearly looking for something. We're thankful that you have called us and we know the one true God people looking for heaven, looking for someone to help them, something to worship, something to, 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 to exhibit justice in this world, to help them with their sick child and their difficult lives. And yet we know the one true God. And we do pray, Father, that this would be made known. We, we, we pray for our witness. We pray for our evangelism. We pray for our church that we would uh, support missionary endeavors that these people who are blind, these people who are literally bleeding for their false gods would turn to the one true God. For us, Lord, help us to understand what this means in a practical way as we live out our faith and our Christianity, specifically with this body of believers. Help us to understand how our decisions and gray areas may impact positively or negatively other people. Help us to pursue a service that is based on true biblical love because you loved us first and saved us. Help us to be people who are clearly and constantly in awe of you, worshiping you. I pray that they wouldn't turn off during busy season. It wouldn't turn off because the kids are crying. It wouldn't turn off because we're on vacation. It wouldn't turn off because we're frustrated with the pandemic. But that we would always Remember that you are real, you are supreme, we exist for you at all times in every circumstance, on Zoom, in person, vac vaccinated or not, whoever our president is, whatever our trials are, dead, alive, you are our God. And may we live and worship in that way, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together.